The date is December 24th, 1975, and the place is a lonely country road in Staffordshire County, England. Barry, Elaine, and their two small children are driving home from a Christmas party around 11 p.m. Barry and Elaine sat in the front seats, and their two small children are in the back fast asleep. They're less than a mile away from their home in Slitting Mill when their vehicle suddenly sputters to a halt. Barry coasts the car to the shoulder and reluctantly steps outside into the chilly night in order to inspect any damage or faulty hardware. Scratching his head, Barry can see that there's nothing wrong with the radiator, the battery seems fine, there are no loose wires, but he's no mechanic, and rather than stand there and be useless, he decides to walk home in order to retrieve his wife's car. Placing a couple old picnic blankets over his wife and children, Barry tells them he'll be back soon to pick them up and drive them home. After all, their house is less than a mile away. However, as he walks away from the vehicle, his wife Elaine calls out to him, Barry, look out. It was then that Barry noticed a shadowy figure emerging from the woods of Canic Chase. As it trudged along closer and closer to the country road, Barry could see it was about four feet tall and hairy. It had a hooked nose and a hunchback, and he and his wife watched in bewilderment as it scurried across the road in front of them. Returning to the safety of the car, Barry and his wife watched as another one of these hairy humanoids scurried from one side of the road to the other, and then another creature, and another. And soon enough, a small group of these goblin-like creatures were gathered along the side of the road. Just as their initial fear had turned into a kind of astonished curiosity, they began to panic as they realized these hideous creatures were slowly walking towards their car. In the dark of night, they never got a good look at the creature's eyes or other details. In fact, they can't even remember what happened next because the very next thing they knew was it was two o'clock in the morning. They were all in the car, safe and sound. Their toddlers were still asleep and their car was now running perfectly fine. But what was most unsettling was they had no recollection of what occurred in those three missing hours of time. The last thing they remembered was the bizarre band of beings, known locally as the Trolls of Slitting Mill, walking towards them that peculiar Christmas Eve night in the paranormal hotspot that is Canic Chase. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to Paranormal Community College. My name is Riley, and we are diving right back into the strange goings-on in Canic Chase, England today. Last week, we talked about ghosts, a black-eyed girl, and the pigman. And in this week's episode, we are talking about aliens and cryptids, because yes, Canic Chase claims to have it all. But before we dive in here, I just wanted to quickly thank all my new YouTube subscribers, as well as my new followers on Spotify. It is very much appreciated and very encouraging, so thank you guys so much. I have so many goals and ideas for this podcast, and I definitely don't want to give up on this little weird endeavor of mine. And I want to thank my longtime listeners for sticking around, because there is still so much to come. It's just a matter of time and money, but I'm working on it. And your support really does keep me focused and keeps me believing in this podcast potential. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, but enough of that. Let's talk about some aliens. My favorite thing to talk about. And apparently, there's plenty of them in the chase. In fact, the Canic Chase area even has its very own UFO crash site, or so some say. 
1964, in the town of Penkridge, just 15 minutes away from Canuck Chase, which coincidentally was where the family from Slitting Mill was driving home from that Christmas Eve night, several witnesses claimed they saw a series of bright lights in the night sky. One woman said it looked like it was hovering just above the tree line, so at a very low altitude, and it also made no noise. Others said there was not just one bright light, but two, and that the white light was being trailed by a smaller, more orange-colored light. But what many witnesses agreed upon was that it seemed to disappear somewhere around Coxborough Lane, which, I gotta say, is just a great street name. And one man, a man named Harold South, said he saw, quote, a spaceship fall to Earth. Mr. South also said he'd seen wreckage strewn across a Penkridge field, had watched military and police close surrounding roads, and he had seen the remains of what was once a Delta-shaped craft being loaded on an aircraft transporter. The evidence, he said, was hidden under a kind of heavy-duty waterproof cloth. He also claimed that he did have photographic evidence of the downed craft and subsequent wreckage, but of course, the military and police had taken it all away. The only other substantial source I could find online was a letter written to the Ministry of Defense just last year in 2023 by a man named John Conway, and the story reads, Dear Ministry of Defense, U.S. Navy 3rd Class Petty Officer S.M. Brannigan raised alarm bells about a mysterious crash in Penkridge, a town on the edge of the River Penk near Canuck Chase, Staffordshire, between February and March 1964. He said three bodies were recovered from the operation to deal with the incident at Coxborough Lane, which involved Air Force Intelligence and NATO. Brannigan was stationed in the Caribbean at the time and told of his discovery after he intercepted a Soviet transmission. He said the Russian message referred to a UFO malfunctioning and falling to Earth in two parts, the larger section near Penkridge, the other splintering over West Germany. Mystery further surrounded the incident when an eyewitness came forward to say he took photos of a, quote, delta-shaped object he spotted in a field near Penkridge at the time. Harold South of Blockswich claims the curious item was partially covered by a tarpaulin and placed on an aircraft transporter. He came across it when he was stopped from driving his van by a roadblock manned by Army, Royal Air Force, and police personnel. South said the officers confiscated his camera after he took pictures of the scene, and when it was returned to him, the film had been taken out. Paranormal websites report the wrecked craft was taken to Porton Down Scientific Research Center. Yours faithfully, Mr. John Conway. And the Ministry of Defense did reply, as you can imagine. They said that they do not have an interest or opinion on unidentified flying objects, and that they could not find any documents supporting this idea of a downed craft of some kind in Penkridge during the year 1964. And at the end of the day, this may be just a tall tale, perhaps a rumor that got out of hand. But we all know that governments around the world are hiding something when it comes to UFOs. And I mean, it's just general public knowledge now that they've been hiding it for decades. And they may only be hiding what they do know because they may know actually very little about the phenomenon. But that's another story for another time. Lee Brickley, who I mentioned in last week's episode and who is the preeminent paranormal researcher and journalist of Canic Chase, has this to say of the UFO crash in Penkridge. 
Quote, there is no doubt in my mind that something definitely did happen on Canuck Chase in 1964. The U.S. Navy files alone prove that. But with our overly secret government and their obsession with suppression of knowledge and technology, we may never know the truth. You would expect that an incident like this that obviously involved many different people from many different agencies would be recorded in some way in Ministry of Defense files. Unfortunately not. We must remember, however, the Ministry of Defense is very much a government department and these places have a long history of cover-ups. Do you honestly believe if the British government or security services had evidence of craft from outer space, they would see fit to tell us about it? I certainly don't. Now, I couldn't find any of these U.S. Navy files about Canuck Chase in 1964 that Mr. Brickley brought up. But, you know, he might have more resources than I do. I'm not sure. I do know from doing research on previous, um, like, abduction cases that the, the U.S. Navy does seem to keep a better track of these types of reports. So he might actually have something there. But, honestly, I don't know what to believe about this alleged craft with so little information. But I saw that some people are calling this, quote, Britain's Roswell and I would say that if Britain had its own Roswell, it would definitely be the Rendlesham Forest incident in 1980. But anyway, however small or substantial the kernel of truth may be here, it is undeniable that Canic Chase is a hotbed of UFO activity. And thanks to FOIA, there is documented evidence that the Ministry of Defense was very interested in Canic Chase. And perhaps they still are. They just didn't have anything on this so-called Penkridge UFO crash incident. So back in 1960, a couple of witnesses claimed they saw an alien pushing a car up a hill in Brockton. So that's cool. In the 1980s, large triangular UFOs were spotted flying over the chase by several eyewitnesses. Jumping around here to 1995, when a group of young boys said they saw an alien with a lemon-shaped head standing by a spaceship. In 1992... A man who wished to remain anonymous said he was indeed abducted by aliens and was subjected to bizarre and painful medical experiments. Throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, there were dozens and dozens of reports related to strange glowing orange orbs people saw in the night sky as well as within the forest, which kind of reminded me of Skinwalker Ranch. Because I do think all these paranormal hotspots have a common factor or numerous common factors, the same type of phenomenon seems to occur in those areas, and there has to be some reason behind it. And I think it's likely a combination of, you know, what we call science, perhaps geology or geography. Perhaps it's a natural atmospheric phenomenon, but I also believe something about it is certainly what we call paranormal. And I really do think that the only difference between science and what we called magic back in the day and what we call paranormal now is that we just we don't understand the supernatural yet and we have too many people in the world just writing it off as you know bullshit when actually i think the more we come to understand the supernatural world and the more we learn about this supernatural realm with the help of science the more it will become you know normalized it will become a part of science but anyway i digress in middleton during december of 1997 there were several reports of semicircle-shaped UFOs, and they appear to be flying in some kind of organized formation. In September of 2002, a man said he saw a, quote, giant piece of flying street 
soaring across the night sky. He said it was easily the size of a jumbo jet, but flying at a very low altitude with zero sound. Also reminded me of Skinwalker Ranch stories. Again in 2002, a man by the name of Andrew Russell was leaving a fitness class and decided to take the long way home down a picturesque backwoods road. It was, after all, beautiful outside, perfect weather, a perfect night for a long ride home with the top down. But he said he kept hearing a noise right above him that sounded like some kind of machine or engine was hovering right over him. He said it was like a loud droning noise. But of course, there was nothing to be seen. He drives around like this for a while, but soon enough it starts to really baffle him and really bother him. So he pulls over to the shoulder, turns off his car, and tries to figure out what the heck is going on. Where is that noise coming from? But when he turned his car off, the strange droning noise continued as if there was something right above his head, but he couldn't see anything. Annoyed and a little bit concerned, Andrew decided to, you know, just turn his car back on and head on home. But shortly after he pulled back onto the road, the radio cut to white noise. He tries to change the station, but the dial isn't working. He tries to turn down the volume, and the dial isn't working. He tries to turn the radio off, but the white noise just persists. None of the dials are working, but then Andrew hears a voice break through that white noise. No, not a voice, a growl. He said someone, something perhaps, growled his name over the radio. And at that, he recalls going into some kind of trance-like state. And he felt compelled to turn down some windy small road he had never seen before. And he had no reason to go down this country lane other than he just, he just felt compelled to. As soon as he did, he saw red lights above his car, swirling around in a circular formation. He said they moved like pucks on an Earhart hockey table. Eventually, he says, they formed into the shape of a triangle, and the last thing he remembers was a bright red beam blinding him, and then everything got really fuzzy, because the next thing he knew, he was back on the road driving home, but he looked at the clock on his dash and saw that it was 2.30 in the morning, and that should have been impossible. When he left the gym, it had been around 10 p.m. He should have easily been home around 10.30, but how had more than four hours passed? Sure enough, when he got home, his wife was frantic by this point. She thought something bad had happened to him. And I wish I would have been there for that conversation like, Honey, sorry I'm late, but I think I got abducted by aliens. Or I'm sorry, but I just completely forgot what happened in the last four hours. Could not, could not have gone over well. Back in the 90s, a motorist driving around Spring Slate Lodge late one night saw a very tall gray female with large black almond-shaped eyes. And he could tell she was female, of course, on account of her huge alien knockers. And while some of these stories may be a little crazy, when I was researching UFO stories from Canic Chase, I was quite often perturbed because I will say that, like, Jesus Christ, man, British journalists really hate UFOs and are incredibly condescending when talking about people who have claimed to see one or have had some kind of close encounter it was honestly really off-putting. Like, have a sense of freaking wonder for a minute, will ya? But we all know people like that, don't we? People who just... As soon as you bring up UFOs or aliens or other dimensions or anything like that, they just shut you down completely. They are completely closed off to any and all things paranormal. They won't listen to you. And um, it can be incredibly frustrating. Because I think if more people 
just had an open mind about this, didn't just write it off as a bunch of like, you know, hocus pocus, that they could actually, you know, learn something and see that people, really smart people too, people like Jacques Vallée, people like Diana Walsh Pasulka, who was on the Joe Rogan podcast this week, all these people, Michio Kaku, who are open to the possibilities of what this phenomenon is, except, you know, there's just, there's way too many people out there right now who just are completely closed off to it. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit too much here, and we still got a lot to talk about. So I had mentioned earlier that unclassified documents from the Ministry of Defense do show they were interested in Canic Chase. And what those documents ultimately reveal is that they were aware of reports of cigar-shaped UFOs. On several occasions, they received reports on glowing white and orange orbs, other silent balls of light circling Pie Green Tower, and one story about a 10-foot-long rectangular structure of light that was seen hovering just above cars on a backwoods highway. But I'm going to mostly wrap up the alien section with one last story. So in 2009, Mark of Heath Hayes Village was leaving a birthday party in the area of Pie Green Tower one evening. And he and a couple of friends, Ian and Paul, decided to walk home, taking a shortcut through the woods of Canic Chase. You know, shortcuts are always a good idea, especially in scary movies. And especially in weird, creepy, haunted forests. And they do admit that they had been drinking and were at least at this point a little bit wobbly. But out of nowhere, they heard this loud metallic banging noise that seemed to come right above their heads. And before they knew it, they were on the ground, paralyzed, and a blinding white light was shining all around them. They tried to move, but they said it was like they were, quote, physically pinned to the ground. After what felt like just a few minutes, the bright light was gone and slowly but surely they were able to move their bodies again. But Ian and Paul quickly realized that Mark was nowhere to be found. They reach a friend's house and explain to them what had happened and that they couldn't find Mark. Obviously not thinking anything like aliens got him or anything, but that something weird happened and yes, they'd been drinking and, you know, they don't know exactly what happened, but they couldn't find their friend. Figuring this was just drunken shenanigans, their other friend suggested that they just sleep it off and they'll go out looking for him in the morning, thinking Mark had simply decided to crash at another house or maybe that he went back to the party or something. Well, the next morning, they received a call from a girlfriend of theirs saying that she had found Mark wandering down some road three miles from where they had last seen him. And she was rather panicked because she said Mark was shaking violently and ashen white, that he wouldn't talk to her and was just, quote, gazing expressionlessly at the early morning sky. Ian, Paul, and an unnamed friend raced over to the girl's house where they found Mark sitting on the porch, still shaking and staring into nothingness. The three carried him inside, sat him on a chair, and tried to warm him up with some blankets. All of a sudden, Mark stood straight up and then collapsed to the floor where he laid there, passed out for two hours. Now, why didn't anybody think to call the doctor or something? Why did no one take him to get checked out? That's a bit weird to me, but moving on. When he woke up, he claimed he couldn't remember anything after that loud bang and bright white light. He had zero recollection of being found wandering, of shaking and staring up into the sky, and he definitely couldn't recall what had happened after he left Ian and Paul. But then he started having flashbacks in the weeks that followed. He remembers being strapped to a large stone table and being surrounded by hooded figures. 
He said he remembers these hooded figures were whispering in his ear in some language he didn't understand. He said they put pressure on his stomach and seemed to be inspecting his mouth, and that they pierced his cheek with some sort of gun thing. And he claims that since the event, he's had unsettling encounters with these dark hooded figures during sleep paralysis episodes, even though he never once had sleep paralysis before this. Now, what's interesting about this story, if true, is that it's similar to an alien abduction story, the bright white light, being strapped to a table, being inspected in a really invasive and terrifying way, but it has more of an occultic kind of twist to it. There's no little gray men this time, but tall hooded figures who strap him to a stone table that seems more like what we'd call a sacrificial stone of some kind. And remember in last week's episode, some people do claim they see dark hooded figures in the woods of Canic Chase. In fact, there's something occurring in Canic Chase that I couldn't categorize as alien or ghost or cryptid behavior. It's, I guess, kind of like a shadow person category, perhaps. Perhaps men in black. And the dark hooded beings make up this category as well. Numerous people have seen what they describe as a floating man dressed in all black. He's described as having very long arms, having an almost slender man kind of appearance. However, he has the face of a very gaunt and very pale old man. Like a man in black, he wears a Hamburg-style black hat, and apparently, he's also got glowing red eyes. In a story from an ecologist who was studying wildlife in Canic Chase, he said he saw three elderly men walking towards him on the path, and they, they looked totally normal. They were dressed in normal hiking clothes, they were laughing with each other, and seemed to be in good spirits. But floating behind these men was this almost ghostly-looking man in black with red eyes, and it was touching these men, touching their faces and grabbing at their shoulders, whispering in their ears, but the three men seemed completely oblivious to all this. The ecologist was the only one who saw him, and when this entity noticed the ecologist could see him, it leered at him and then floated away further up the trail. Some have said, perhaps, what he saw was some kind of energy vampire or demon, an entity that may be around us all the time that we just can't see, which is terrifying. Maybe we can only see stuff like that at these, you know, paranormal hotspots or when the veil is a little fuzzy or lifted slightly. Another man said he was at Castle Ring late at night when he saw what at first looked like a shadow person crawl out of a bright ball of light. Again, like Skinwalker Ranch. But unlike Skinwalker Ranch, this shadow person slowly became more material, more detailed, until he saw this man in black with pale white skin floating above the ground. He said it was just like he was standing maybe two feet off the ground, kind of like an inanimate object, until the entity in the black suit and Homburg hat noticed he was being watched. He then rushed towards the man in a kind of floating ghost-like motion, like a gust of wind, but as soon as a man felt himself collide with this thing, it was just gone. And this is where people are like, okay, maybe there's some kind of portal in Canic Chase. And there's just all sorts of things getting through, including, of course, Bigfoot. Now, British Bigfoot stories are few and far between, but the vast majority of them do occur in the Canic Chase area. And I heard some other podcasters making fun of this because they were like, Oh, but Bigfoot only exists in America. I guess he must have hopped on a boat, hardy har har. But if you listen to my Bigfoot episode, episode number seven, 
then you know that's certainly Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yowie, the Yeti, the Yaren, Orang Pendek, the Woodwolf, and so on and so forth, does not only exist in America. I do think it's interesting, however, that Bigfoot inevitably appear wherever a large amount of paranormal activity occurs. In fact, Lee Brickley contends that Bigfoot legends in the area go back as far as 200 years, much like Canada and the United States. He's said that he's seen 16-inch footprints in the mud of Canuck Chase and seen those classic scratching marks that are thought to be some kind of Bigfoot behavior, I guess you could say. And guess what? There's also been odd animal mutilations in the chase that many associate with Bigfoot. We're talking like throats ripped out and intestines ripped out kind of mutilations. Not exactly the kind where they are exsanguinated, just to be clear. People who live in the vicinity of Canuck Chase as well as day hikers and tourists, have claimed to hear strange growling and even howling noises late in the evening. There was a story I came across about a couple who claims a Bigfoot-like creature jumped on their car before running off, said the creature had glowing red eyes, but I don't know. I mean, your car would be destroyed at that point, so, you know, who knows? And after all, there may be another cryptid responsible for all that howling and all, all the animal mutilations. Because probably more than Bigfoot sightings, we have sightings of werewolves at the chase. Now, there's also a ton of British big cat sightings in the chase, but if I'm going to talk about the British big cats, I'll probably do a whole separate episode on that. So formalized reports and modern rumors go back as far as the 1970s, it seems. But legends of hellhounds, dogmen, and werewolves in the area go all the way back to the 1700s. For example, there's the Hellhound of Brereton, and this werewolf-like creature is said to be a monstrous black dog with large pointed ears and glowing eyes. And in particular, the Hellhound of Brereton enjoys running across the highway and startling motorists, sometimes even causing accidents. Like the Mothman, he's considered to be a kind of harbinger of doom. For example, in the summer of 2006, there was a multi-vehicle crash on the M6 motorway near Junction 10A. No one was killed, but the drivers involved did suffer mild to moderate injuries. When the police arrived, witnesses were reluctant to speak to them. They all knew what they saw, but they knew the police would think they were crazy. One middle-aged woman finally shared her side of the story, and according to her, she was driving home from work when she swerved sharply to avoid a seven-foot-tall, hairy man. But it wasn't really a man, because he had the face of a canine and long, pointed ears. He looked like a giant dog running on its hind legs. Slowly but surely, more passengers came forward, telling the cops, yes, that's that's what we saw too. The police searched the area for any large canine prints, but of course, they couldn't find any. And most of these sightings seem to occur between the year 2000 and 2010. In that decade alone, there were over 20 werewolf sightings, which I'd say is pretty above average when it comes to werewolf sightings around the world. Somebody call uh, Sam and Dean Winchester. In 2010, a man claimed he saw a blue pot of light fall to the ground and then a werewolf crawled out of it. You know, Pokemon style. But again, all jokes aside, that's again going back to the idea of portals. That there might be a portal or multiple portals or some kind of interdimensional thing going on here. In 2004, a man in Hazel Slade said his 12-year-old daughter was attacked by one of these hellhounds at the chase. According to him, 
He was golfing with some friends while his wife and daughter were relaxing and kind of dilly-dallying in some nearby wood. They had decided to bring him lunch and were taking their time exploring the area. But then he heard the screams of his wife coming from the woods. And when he caught up to her, his wife said that a, a, a freaking werewolf grabbed their daughter and took her up the hill. Without really processing what exactly she had said, without putting too much weight on the whole werewolf thing, he ran up the hill and according to him, he saw a seven-foot-tall creature with black hair holding his daughter. And the creature just threw her down and ran off to at what he says was at least 30 miles per hour. Now, admittedly, this story is quite hard to believe. He even goes on to say that she still has a six-inch scar on her arm where the werewolf had slashed her and that she had gotten very sick after that encounter. Oh, also, this all occurred on Friday the 13th, naturally. So I'm, I'm just going to let you all decide if you believe in that one or not. And maybe I'm making a connection where there isn't one at all. But I do think it's interesting that we have another paranormal hotspot associated with another wolf-like creature at Skinwalker Ranch. It's the Skinwalker at Canic Chase. It's the werewolf or the hellhound. Maybe both places or are gateways to other worlds. Maybe not. Who knows? But it's definitely fun to think about. But I don't think we really need to have an entire discussion on what could be happening in Canic Chase because that discussion would look a lot like are other discussions we've already had on this podcast. Are there portals to other worlds? Is Bigfoot real? Are aliens real? What are these entities? Why do paranormal hotspots exist? What draws the unexplainable to these geographical areas? At the end of the day, these stories usually leave us with more questions than answers, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It may be frustrating that our generation may never have the answers to all these questions, but there is a lot of wonder and excitement that comes with not knowing everything. It leaves room for all sorts of possibilities, and it makes the mundane world we live in seem a little more mysterious. And maybe the mystery of it all is a part of the answer in and of itself. Let me know what you guys think about Canic Chase, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, maybe leave me a comment or hit that subscribe button. Tell a friend about this podcast. Tell a coworker. Help spread the word if you can. I haven't quite decided what I will be talking about next week, but until then, have sweet supernatural dreams, and thank you so much for listening. Take care, everyone.